This autumn, Joe and Katie and I are beginning a sermon series called Rockstar, the David Saga. And the story I'm about to read is David's debut on the stage of Hebrew history. This is 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over King Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. So fill your horn with oil and set out, and I will send you to Jesse from Bethlehem. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And when Jesse's sons paraded past Samuel, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look on appearances or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel. And Samuel said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass before Samuel. And Samuel said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all your sons? And Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And so Jesse sent and brought David in, and David was ruddy and handsome and had beautiful eyes, and surely this was the one. And our lesson from the Hebrew Psalter this morning is Psalm 23. The choir will sing it for us. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I went down one of those internet rabbit holes this week when I asked Google which rock star wrote the most songs. And by rock, I mean pop and folk and rap and R&B and soul. Now, this is a very unscientific survey, but I discovered that people like Paul Simon and Prince and Jay-Z and Kanye West and Elton John and Lennon and McCartney have written about 200 songs apiece. Now, my music expert, Rob Lancaster, tells me that in the 21st century, the king of songwriting is someone I'd never heard of before, someone named Max Martin, who has written about 200 songs for everybody, including Taylor Swift, Britney Spears, Katy Perry, and the Backstreet Boys. Joni Mitchell wrote 240 songs. Brian William Wilson wrote 256, mostly for the Beach Boys. The Boss wrote 318. Willie Nelson 337, and Bob Dylan, 356. But the king of songwriting in my lifetime, no pun intended, is Carole King, 527. I call David of Bethlehem a rock star for two reasons. First, because in his own day he was more famous than Bruno Mars. Women swooned in his presence, and men hated him for that very reason, but they still wanted his autograph. Hebrew historians adore King David, and therefore he bestrides the two testaments of the Christian Bible like a colossus. Yale scholar Harold Bloom calls him the most charismatic pro protagonist in Western literature. Bigger than Odysseus, bigger than Achilles, bigger than Hamlet, bigger than Arthur. 
Sometimes when we have a congregation member help us with worship and she or he does a good job like Rhonda Jordan or Peter Hepner, Joe Forrest will say that person is a rock star liturgist. And that's why I call David a rock star. He's been a rock star in the popular imagination for 3,000 years. But also, of course, because he wrote so many Billboard Top 40 hits, right? According to the Hebrew Bible, David wrote 73 of the 150 songs in the Hebrew Psalter. Almost half, including the number one hit of all time, The Lord's My Shepherd. In your mind's eye, can't you picture King David out in the pasture with his sheep, picking at his harp and making the words up as he goes along? The Lord's my shepherd. He leadeth me into green pastures and besides still waters. And that's exactly what David is doing when it's time for a regime change in Israel. It's too complicated to get into just now, but for various reasons, God and God's press secretary Samuel have grown weary with Israel's first king, Saul, who became king a generation ago. Impeachment time. And Yahweh tells Samuel that there's a wealthy guy named Jesse in the little sheep herding village of Bethlehem who has eight sons. And when Samuel gets there, Jesse parades seven of his eldest sons past Samuel like it was the Miss America pageant. These guys are royal timber. They are strapping and handsome. They walk 20 miles a day up and down the hillsides of Judea chasing their sheep with chiseled calves and quads and pecks. But God tells Samuel, Samuel, don't be deceived by a pretty face or a fantastic physique. God doesn't look at external appearances. God looks at the heart and substance and soul of a person. Now this happens seven times, seven rejections. Tom Seaver once struck out ten batters in a row. These Jesse's sons are like the Detroit Tigers batting lineup, seven consecutive Ks. And when it's all done, Samuel is baffled and says to Jesse, don't you have any more kids? And Jesse looks at Samuel and says, well, yeah, there's the runt of the litter, but he's out in the field watching the sheep. Anybody here forgotten in their own family? David is forgotten in his own family. So one of Jesse's sons goes to the pasture to fetch David, and David comes back to town and prances down the runway just like his brothers before him, and sure enough, this is the one. This is the Lord's anointed. Now, God might not look on external appearances, but this doesn't keep the Hebrew historian from pointing out that David was ruddy and handsome and had beautiful eyes. And this is just the first in a long catalog of casual but adoring asides that the Hebrew historian will throw David's way across this long, sprawling narrative. Well, so what, right? How is this God's word for us today? How is David's story our story? Well, I'm glad you asked. I have a couple of suggestions. Two, actually. Put yourself in David's shoes. David is invisible in his own family. Those who love him best and know him most have forgotten about him. He's an afterthought for them. When they chose sides for the soccer match at the playground, were you out in the fields watching the sheep? 
When the admissions department at Northwestern shuffled through a tall tower of applications, were you out in the in left field watching the sheep? When all these beautiful people were swiping right on the dating apps, did you get swept left out into the field with the sheep? At the ad agency, when they chose the creative team for this huge new account, were you out in the fields watching the sheep? Were you ever an afterthought? I think it's happened to most of us at some point in our lives, right? And so if you feel invisible or insignificant, toiling at your ordinary work in some forgotten corner of human commerce, be patient, because it's possible that in the course of your ordinary menial job, God is actually an unseen, stealthy providence is actually sculpting a magnificent future from your ordinariness. It's possible. Preparing you for something much larger and more public. Because it's the oddest thing, right? We don't think about this because it's so common to us. But the most menial occupation in human endeavor becomes a symbol for the most important job in the world. Queen, premier, prime minister, president. A shepherd symbolizes an able regent, yes? This is true, has been true for 5,000 years in every corner of the earth, in every land, and every culture. An able regent is called a good shepherd. And this is because it's the same job, right? A good shepherd and an able regent leads the flock or the tribe down right paths towards goodness and mercy. The good shepherd and the able regent provides adequate hydration and ample nourishment for the flock or the tribe. Both shepherds and regents inoculate the flock against disease. Both shepherds and regents protect the, tr the flock or the tribe from predators or enemies and is willing to die for the flock or the tribe if necessary. When it's time to birth the babies, good shepherds and able regents make sure the mothers are in a safe place with expert oversight in case something goes wrong and neither a good shepherd nor an able regent will ever, ever separate the babies from the mothers. And so you can put yourself in J David's shoes if you feel invisible. It's possible that a stealthy providence is sculpting a, an extraordinary future from your ordinary presence. Or maybe that doesn't work for you. Maybe you don't feel invisible and forgotten. Maybe you're very visible and very public and very integral to the thriving of this community. If that's the case, then you can put yourself into Samuel's shoes and ask yourself, whose shoulder can I tap and send that life in a different direction? Because this is David's call story, right? This is the point where God resets the trajectory of David's life to something extraordinary and public and huge and literally world-changing. And so some of us just need a little push. You know, in 1940, Warren Buffett's father took him on a trip to New York for Warren's birthday. Warren was 10 years old. And, you know, when you go to New York, some 10-year-olds want to see the zoo or the Empire State Building, but guess what Warren Buffett wanted to see? Right, the New York Stock Exchange. And when he gets there, he instantly befriends a senior partner at Goldman Sachs. And after they've talked for a while, the banker throws his arm around Warren's shoulder, and they look at the big board, and the banker says, So, Warren, what stock do you like? 
And people have been asking Warren that question ever since. <laughs> Just need a little push. So you know who turned the Santa Clara Valley into the Silicon Valley, right? In 1938, Bill Hewlett and David Packard were engineering students at Stanford. And back then, after graduating, all these brilliant Stanford engineers would have to come to the East Coast to get a decent job at General Electric or IBM. And so Bill Hewlett and David Packard got together and raised $538 and started their own little electronics company and they called it Hewlett Packard. And so all those other tech companies followed HP out there to Silicon Valley, Intel, Cisco, Oracle, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Mr. Hewlett and Mr. Packard did pretty well for themselves. And 30 years later, in 1967, for some reason, Bill Hewlett is in his office when the phone rings and he picks it up. Maybe his assistants were all at lunch or something, but he picks up the phone and on the other end of the phone is a 12-year-old kid who wants some spare parts to build something called a frequency counter. And Mr. Hewlett is so delighted and surprised by this audacity that he not only gives this 12-year-old kid the spare parts, but gives him a job for the summer at HP making frequency counters. Nine years later in 1976, this 12-year-old kid turns 21 and decides to start his own electronics company and he's going to pattern it after what he learned at HP when he was 12 years old. And he decides to call his electronics company Apple Computer. 12-year-old Steve Jobs, spare parts. There's so many ways we can assist a stealthy, unseen providence turn the ordinary into something extraordinary. And so, Joe and Katie and I are proud to be called your pastors because that's what the word means literally, right? Shepherd. The word pastor is related to the word pasture. We are your spiritual shepherds. September 11 fell on Tuesday this year, just like it did 17 years ago. And so I got to thinking about the events, the events of that terrible day, and I remembered Father Michael Judge. Remember Father Michael Judge? He was the chaplain to the New York City Fire Department. At 9.59 a.m. on Tuesday, September 11, 2001, Father Judge was standing in the lobby of the North Tower praying for the office workers in those buildings and for the first responders when the South Tower came tumbling down and sent all this rubble into the lobby of the North Tower, killing several people, including Father Judge. And so you've seen this famous photograph of these five New York City firefighters carrying Father Judge's body away from the rubble in an office chair, sometimes called an, an American Pieta. But what you might not know is they continued to take Father Judge's body to St. Peter's Roman Catholic Church down the street. And they marched down the center aisle and they laid Father Judge's body beneath the altar in the chancel and they covered it with a shroud and they put his priestly stole and his firefighter's badge on top of his body and they said a prayer and then they went back to what was left of the Twin Towers. When Father Judge's body finally made it to the morgue, the medical examiner gave him a death certificate which read victim number 0001. 
Father Judge was obviously not the first to die on 9-11, but he was the first to be processed away from there. So he is victim number 0001. A few days later at his funeral, Father Judge's friend, Father Michael Duffy, is speculating about the symbolism of that number one. Why was Father Judge the first? And then Father Duffy answers his own question. He says, it's because in this life, Father Judge's job was to bring firefighters into the presence of God. That's what he was about. That was his calling. 343 firefighters died in the Twin Towers on 9-11. Father Judge could not possibly have ministered to every one of them this side of the grave in this life. And so what Father Judge did is he went over to be the first one so that he would be there to welcome them into the loving arms of God. That's what shepherds do. She goes first. They go ahead of us. They prepare the way. And so if you ever wonder how little shepherd boy David learned what it takes to be such an able regent in Israel for 40 years, just remember the old song, The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside. That's where David learned to be such an able regent. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.